When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. As we were saying earlier, it's like you got to start small. Like I started with the two family and then I bought another two family, but I bought it with the partner. So I had a partner now. And then uh, we sold that property. It was like a 40% IRR. So I, there was one track record, right? And then ended up buying a 10 unit with my partner. We refinanced that. We pulled out like 140% of our capital. There's the other case study. So you just got to keep building and the momentum will keep building over time. Uh, I hear the Grant Cardone's, you know, the world, of, oh yeah, buy 300 units, 400 units. Yeah. If you had a track record, if you bought other deals before, then, then great. Or if you have the capital yourself, sure, no problem. But that's 0.0005% of the, the world. Like, so I like the starting small, regardless of your age too. I mean, I know people who get involved in real estate in their you know, 50s, 60s, and they want to do value add or they have different goals sometimes, but it doesn't matter with the age either. You just got to, I'd say, start small and keep growing from there. That's the way to do it, in my opinion. Thanks all for tuning in to Dreamcatchers, where we make things happen. Dreamcatchers was formally launched to unlock the hidden potential in successful, self-motivated individuals who desire to take their life's work to the next level, but need support to evolve. We are a collective group of professionals with various backgrounds that use our talents to assist those individuals in realizing their wildest dreams by providing education, inspiration, and direction. This podcast is where we share the lessons we've learned along the way to catching our dreams and give you some context around the how and the why to each approach to put you further ahead on the journey to catching your dreams. Are you ready? Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Dreamcatchers podcast. I'm your host, Jerome. And you guys are in for a treat today. I have Anthony in from New Jersey. How are you? Good, sir. I'm doing great, Jerome. Thanks for having me on. Excited to have you here. We do things a little unconventional on the Dream Catchers podcast. I always give the listeners the opportunity to find out who you are and do their cyber stalking while you're talking. So how can the listeners get in contact with you? Yeah, I mean, if you could just type my name in as Class A Felon on Google, and I, I'm just kidding. Um, no, uh, Anthony Scandariato on Google. Red Knight Properties is the name of my company, rednightproperties.com. You can find us on pretty much every social media platform except TikTok. I'm not on there yet, man. I need some help with that. Yeah, I can't help you. <laughs> <laughs> it's new. It's so new for me. But yeah, pretty much on everywhere. So feel free to stalk me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Google, Anthony Scandariato or Red Knight Properties. Outstanding. So, you know, the listeners are probably asking, they're like, man, all right, he's got the funny name, he's got the Jersey accent, Red Knight Properties. <laughs> How did he get here? Who is he? What's his background? 
And so, you know, we talk about the six levels of the red pill. The first one is self-image. So let's talk about self-image. Who are you? Where'd you come from? What's your story? What's the framework for your world? Yeah. So when we're talking about self-image, who am I? I mean, you have my name. You'll be able to stalk me and find out more about me. But no, I'm an entrepreneur from the get-go. I actually, in high school and a little bit throughout middle school, I was a music instructor on the side. I used to drive around on my bicycle in my neighborhood where I grew up in northern New Jersey, about maybe an hour, an hour 10 outside of Manhattan, just to put it in context, west. And I put flyers in you know, my neighbor's mailboxes if they wanted to learn piano or guitar. So kind of been an entrepreneur at heart from, you know, the age of 13, 14, started taking music lessons when I was like nine, 10, and was able to build up a client list of like maybe, you know, probably two dozen, maybe three dozen students at the time. And I would charge, you know, 15 bucks a session and they'd be a half an hour or sometimes an hour, but usually about a half an hour. And you know, I had a nice little business going, at least for my age at the time. So always just had that entrepreneurial bug. And, you know, that's what led me to where I am now. I'm, I'm almost in my 30s and led me to running Grand Night Properties, which is, you know, multifamily, as you know, Jerome, real estate investment and management company. You know, now we have over 600 units in our portfolio. So pretty excited for the future. Man, that's exciting. That's a decent sized portfolio starting out. So there was some transition that happened before you just went out and hung your own shingle in the business of ownership and operating, right? So let's talk a little bit about that just so people get the full framework. Yeah, yeah. I had a lot of different challenges along the way, basically through the middle school years, which I mentioned, I was had that entrepreneurial bug and was you know teaching my neighborhood. Throughout high school, it was the complete opposite, though. I really went down a really dark path basically failed every single class, freshman, sophomore year, got sent to a boarding school and really had to clean my act up together. I was not well-behaved, getting into things I shouldn't have been in and was able to turn around by, you know, the end of my junior year into senior year and, you know, didn't really want to even pursue college, but I attended a community college after for two years and really cleaned up my act together and was able to transfer to an Ivy League school and graduated from there and in 2014. And since then, I had a, a smaller business while I was in, you know, the later years of college too, that I ran while I was in school and then kind of transitioned out of that to real estate after graduation. So I always, you know, been in the business now, like, you know, six, almost seven years at this point. Um, so it didn't start, you know, inherit anything. I didn't, you know, my family, you know, I did have some people in the industry, but they worked in very different capacities weren't really exposed to the deal flow and, and the asset management side or acquisition side at all, but really, you know, worked hard throughout that community college years and throughout the latter years of college, trying to clean up my act and everything, you know, came together and now pursuing real estate. So that's just a little backstory on that. And just the moral of that is some people, and you know, this Jerome, they kind of, you know, inherit a family business, which is fine, but, you know, it's always about the self-made image person, you know, whether it's man or woman, it's just, I've always appreciated that and always wanted to become one of those. So hopefully that's what I'm known for now or in some respect. So led to the change, like what was the catalyst when you decided, Hey, I'm not just going to be somebody who's not a high achiever because to do what you've done, you've got to be performing at a pretty high level. 
I mean, there's no way you can scale the way that you have in such a short period of time. Yeah, I mean, I had a pretty poor friend group in the early years of high school. I think I kind of changed that. I was very influenced by my peers at the time. You know, it's a little bit different story now, but the peers I was hanging around with was not the best. And I kind of changed that going into those later years of high school and definitely changed it in college. I grew up in a community, I would say it's middle, middle to upper middle class, grew up people from all different walks of life. And for a lot of times, it, my grade in high school is very, I'd say, close knit. And they'd always talk about, oh, what college are you going to? What college are you going to? What college? So I think a lot of them got into very good schools. And I was a little jealous of that. So I think that's what really motivated me to get my crap together um, and get it together quick. I didn't want to live the rest of my life not really knowing what I wanted to do or just didn't really have a purpose. So I just started, you know, changing, you know, the, the type of community and just really, really helped shape my mindset. I started reading books, started listening to different things, different motivational speakers like Tony Robbins at the time. This is going back 10 years, so more than 10 years. So, you know, the whole mindset shift is just incredible. And I think that's what really helped, but it does, it starts with the mindset, but, you know, your environment too, try to help improve that at the same time. And, you know, once your mindset starts going, then your life ends up improving kind of naturally around you. So that's what I think ended up happening, but it wasn't just, oh yeah, now I I just bought a 600 unit building with my father's money or something. No, it's just not how it worked. It, <laughs> so, um, you know, I really try to, when I talk to other, whether it's clients of mine or just people in the industry are like, wow, you, you like 600 units, like that's a lot of units. Yeah, but it, it took, you know, it took a long time and you could do it too. And you could do it quicker than me. So as long as you have the tools. So that's just a little bit on my story, man. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And so usually there's a person that shows up while we're on our, our journey that kind of helps us along. They usher us into the new place. Did you have anybody show up for you at a pivotal time to help you make a transition? Yeah, I mean, my parents were great. I mean, they basically sent my butt to the boarding school. And, you know, I'm really glad they did that. My mother and my father. And, you know, I, I would have been lost in public school system. My, I think my class had 600, 700 students. It was very large. So the average class size was maybe 40 people. And, in, in a, you know, let's say a Spanish class. And I got very lost and very misbehaved. So it really helped turn it around. And then it just kind of, from the education side, it just kind of springboarded into other aspects of my life to turn around, man. Do you, were you appreciative of your parents when you first got the news that you were going out to boarding school? Oh man, that was uh, that was a tough one. Very resistant, of course, and pretty reluctant. It was what it was. I mean, I had literally had a, a instead of a bus, I had a van pick me up at, in front of my house, and I did van past the school bus with the public school kids, and I didn't feel good about myself. So that really, really woke me up. I think the school's still around, but really woke me up and really thankful that part of my life is over. But it led me into the next phase of my career. Okay. And so you go through the boarding school, you go to the Ivy League school, and then you come out and do you get into real estate right away or are you doing something else? Yeah. Again, coming from an entrepreneurial background and, you know, for the audience, real estate is such an, and Jerome knows this, it's such an entrepreneurial business. You know, you try to get involved in everything, but you try to delegate as much as you can, but you got to be creative. And, you know, I had a small business towards the later years of college with a couple of partners. So ran that while we were in college. I ran it for a few months after college. 
didn't really see a long-term uh, viability to it. A light bulb kind of went off. And then I ended up taking some time off, maybe, I don't know, maybe six months to kind of figure out what the next move was and started talking to other folks in you know the industry. I really had an interest in buildings and architecture and real estate. So I just started networking. I literally just talking to people, like going on my LinkedIn. Okay, who did I graduate with? Are they in real estate? Let me see if I can get a phone call with them or a meeting and call, grab a cup of coffee and see what they're up to. And that's kind of how that ended up springboarded. So yeah, it was like a six-month process post-graduation. But um, yeah, it wasn't like right away into real estate. I knew that's what I wanted to do, but I figured it out pretty quickly. And definitely, you know, once you're in the industry, Jerome, and, and I'm sure you know this, it's hard to, uh, you could just kind of like your life. You don't really want to do anything else. <laughs> so I call it being unemployable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. So, all right. Eventually, though, you, you strike out on your own. You do red night properties. I think you have maybe a partner in on that deal with you as well. But yes, you decided that you were going to hang your own shingle and have something that was yours. Yep. At what point after you started that did you realize like you had to keep going? I call this the red pill moment. It's like it's hard, but it doesn't matter how bad it gets. I'm going to go. Yeah. So my red pill moment to start red night. So what ended up happening was I ended up working as an analyst for a real estate company. I eventually landed that role just through networking. I must've had, ah, maybe 300, 400 phone calls, just talking to people within that six month period. And I ended up landing something kind of, you know, they were looking for somebody, but it wasn't like a formal job application that, you know, but I ended up getting the job there as, you know, acquisitions analyst. And we were buying uh, class A multi-tenant office buildings up and down the East Coast in markets like North Carolina and, you know, markets in the Southeast and also up North where I am. So had a great run there. I was there almost seven years and, you know, ended up helping them grow their portfolio from like, I think it was 600 million under management to a little bit over a billion by the time I left in many different capacities. So learned a lot and was really appreciative and still keep in touch with, with them. And my red pill moment was I think my second year while I was there, I ended up buying my first duplex that I ended up buying on my own. It's kind of like a house hack situation. I ended up moving out pretty quickly. I had some things to take care of. But once I moved out and I re-rented it and I saw the passive income coming in, that was the red pill moment. I'm like, wow, this is great. And, you know, I think it was like $1,000 a month for me just coming in. And I still own the property today. But that was the moment where I was like, listen, I want to try to buy as many properties today as I can. I don't know everything. I still don't know everything, but um, I want to learn, keep learning from this group that I'm working for. I have an honor and oath to them. But on the side, on the weekends, let me see what deals I can put together on my own. So I ended up buying together using basically, I was still living with my parents. I basically lived with them for a long time just to keep saving up money to do my own deals. Uh, so I funneled for taxes 90% of my income to down payments on deals. It was very hard. But again, living with the parents definitely helped. But it was a sacrifice because most of my friends in my 20s were out and they were doing this and that and paying rent and whatnot. So I made a sacrifice. So basically from there, we bought about 70 units together while I was still working. I met my business partner while I was working on the side. And we had a few larger syndicated deals that we were looking to put together. And two of them ended up like coming together in 2019. We ended up owning our properties for about a year. We did a couple of cash out refis, really good returns, and we were able to present them to our newly formed investor group 
for the other couple of deals that we were putting together. And yeah, we got the capital together. We got the deals under contract. At that time, for me, this was going into 2020. I just kind of was like, listen, I have a couple of deals under contract now. And I have an oath to my investors now. I have like 20 or 25 investors I got to report to. So, you know, I have an oath to be a fiduciary to them. And I really want to go at it. I can't, I'm not going to be half in it, book the full time. But for me, it was good to have built up that passive income stream while I was there. So I felt comfortable to make that full-time jump with the real red pill moment to start and land my own shop. So that's to make a long story short, Jerome. No, it's not a long story at all. It's really short considering how much happened. So the thing that I really get excited about, in fact, I feel like you need a round of applause, (laughs) is the way that you went... The way that you got tuna in the boat, right? So a lot of folks just go in and they think, hey, I'm going to do this $20 million deal first go around and people are going to line up and give me money and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I just don't think that's the way that it actually plays out in the real world. And so having some track record, putting some of your own skin in the game, getting an actual return so you can prove to people that the concept works and then going back and doing it again with other people who now can see that you've actually done something, I think is the fastest way to real success. Sure. Yeah. I, I can't tell you, and you hit the nail on the head, Jerome, how many times I've seen, and I still get the deals because, you know, I try to do other investments outside of my deals as well. And I get these deals from, you know, guys and girls never done deals before. And it's like, you just sent me a $50 million underwriting. I found like 15 things wrong with your model already. And you're trying to raise capital and you don't even have the deal under contract. So it's just like many, as you were saying earlier, it's like, you got to start small. Like I started with the two family and then I bought another two family, but I bought it with the partner. So I had a partner now. And then uh, we sold that property. It was like a 40% IRR. So there was one track record, right? And then ended up buying a 10 unit with my partner. We refinanced that. We pulled out like 140% of our capital. There's the other case study. So you just got to keep building and the momentum will keep building over time. Uh, I hear the Grant Cardone's, you know, the world, of, oh yeah, buy 300 units, 400 units. Yeah. If you had a track record, if you bought other deals before, then, then great. Or if you have the capital yourself, sure, no problem. But that's 0.0005% of the, the world. Like, so I like the starting small, regardless of your age too. I mean, I know people who get involved in real estate in their you know, 50s, 60s, and they want to do value add or they have different goals sometimes, but it doesn't matter with the age either. You just got to, I'd say, start small and keep growing from there. That's the way to do it, in my opinion. Without question. I mean, everything has progression, right? Yep. Everything else has progression except for this. I feel like we're being told we can do things that just don't make sense. And if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Okay. So you step out, you're doing your own thing, you build your track record, and then you continue to grow. Then you start syndicating. Let's talk about some of the challenges. Can you give me three challenges that were along the way? Yeah. Property management is always a challenge. I think we had another show we were discussing that. Property management, it's still a challenge, but it's, it's workable. The capital raise is a challenge too, if you don't have a track record. But even starting out, it's still challenging. It still has its challenges every day. And then The third one I would say is obviously finding good deals. Those are the three that I see still today that, you know, business is not easy. If people, a lot of times 
think they're just going to go right into it and, and make a quick buck or flip on, you know, whatever they're trying to buy. And it's just not how it works. So, yeah, I mean, those three things, finding the deals, the capital, and, and like I said, the management, those are the three. How do you overcome those? Yeah, with the management, we talked about this before, but it's always about getting good systems in place, getting good software on many different fronts. And even for the capital, so for the second part, the capital, we didn't have any system. I had an Excel spreadsheet of, okay, Jerome's in for 50,000, Ned is in for 100,000. You know, it was all over the place. Did they set, did they sign this, the commitment? Did they execute their subscription? It was all PDF forms all over the place. I mean, it would take like two months to get everybody's capital in. So another way we were able to solve that is the investor relations platform. We use InvestNext, which is very good, becoming more used in the industry now which is great to see. So we put a software in place for that, for the property management. We didn't have any software either. We had an Excel spreadsheet. You know, Jerome paid his rent this month. And it's just like, it was just so, even with building up to those 70 unit properties, we still didn't have property management software. But once we brought on the additional outside partners, we had to. So the software was key. And then the third with the deals, able to overcome that just by it's more of nurturing the relationships because it's very easy to form a relationship quickly with the broker especially if you have some credibility very easy to do that but nurturing them like hitting them up every couple weeks or you know every month or Bo Berry I'm sure you've seen him before in Florida has some good content on that how often to reach out to brokers to find deals like I just had a deal come to me just from following up with the broker I've known for like two years we haven't done any deals together but it's just the, yeah, hey, what's going on? You got anything like fall out of contract or anything interesting? Actually, yeah, something just fell out of contract. I think actually you would like it. I saw it. I loved it. You know, so nurturing, I think, is a little bit more and then, than starting. So those are the three things, Jerome. What's up, tribe? It's your host, Jerome. I just want to let you know that we put together a free 15-point checklist for exiting the matrix. Jump on over to dreamshouldbereal.com in order to pick your free copy up. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, I think a lot of folks, regardless of what the business is, they're waiting to see if you're going to be around in six months, right? Or you're just a flash (laughs) in the pan. They they want to see, especially those who've been in the industry for a decade or more, they just want to know if you're you're here and you got some staying power. So I think that makes a huge difference, man. That's true. All right. So let's dive deep. What was your worst fear in the process? It's hard to say, but I guess with the syndicated process, you're dealing with other people's money. So it's always, it's not your own anymore. But I think the way to overcome that was to establish a track record, use your own skin in the game. And also another way to overcome it is to, if you're bringing on outside capital in a deal, you should put your own capital into it as much as you can. It doesn't have to be a lot, but it's whatever you're comfortable with. So you're aligned with your investors too. And they know that, they know that. And then you're like, well, I have, you know, like twice the amount of incentives to perform on here because my money's in it too and my investors. So that was, I think the most fearful was, okay, now I got other people's money that I have to be a good steward of. And I got to preserve. It's always about preserving the principle. The, the returns will come, but you keep preserving that principle. People will thank you for it. So those were the couple things I would say, Jerome. So before you took that first money in, how did you break through that, right? Because when you actually get the check or when the wire hits, 
that's when it becomes very real. Everything else is conceptual before that. So what made you run through and press through that last little ring of fire? Yeah, like I said, it was a little scary. The good thing was I did that. It was beneficial for me to have experience with the other firm I worked for. So I like saw that type of process happen. So when it happened for myself, it was like, it was, I wouldn't say it was scary, but it was more of like, oh, okay, yeah, it's, it's real now, you know, like it's a different situation. So it's more of, like I said, as long as you have an opportunity that you feel comfortable in to the event, to the point where you want to put your own money in, it, just everything will kind of, I would say, come naturally in terms of not being fearful of performing on the deal. You know, it's always helps when, you know, the partners, especially the operators, stand by the deal with their investors. So we try to do that. We actually, we do do, we don't try to do it. We do it on every single opportunity. Got it. Got it. And so a lot of times when we're building these enterprises, we have these moments where everything is on the line, right? There's this rock bottom or this point of no return where either it's got to happen or, you know, everything may fall to the side. Did you yeah. have any of those moments or do you have oh, one yeah. in particular oh, worth yeah. talking about? Multiple. I mean, the first one was during the early stages of the COVID crisis last year. And I'm sure you saw this too. You might've been under contract for a couple of deals and sellers were getting impatient because the financing kind of froze for a few months from basically April to June of 2020. And yeah, I mean, sellers were threatening me to take my deposit and like I needed to close and and the lender would pull out. And yeah, that was probably a very stressful period. And that was when I went full time too with the company. Great time. And I, I, strategy at its best, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I thought everything was great. It was, you know, I'm leaving. I got this under contract. We're going to close, you know, in April, like we said, and everything's going to be fine. No problem. That March hit and the world changed. So it, it was Definitely challenging. That was very stressful. We had some old school sellers we were working with that they understood what was going on with the, you know, the coronavirus is a serious thing. But at the same time, they were like, well, I've been doing this for 20 years. I've always been able to get financing. Why can't you get financing right now? I don't get it. Like, it makes no sense to me. And it's like call after call after call. And then they're like, well, I'm only going to extend your contract if you put up another half a million dollars hard, you know? So like we ended up doing that. <laughs> Like, like we took risks that we were like, holy crap, we're never going to take these ever again. But we closed. We closed, supposed to close in April and we closed in July. So, you know, that was a three month period, essentially. So, yeah, there's a lot of moments like that. That's just one. And they come up now, too. You know, deals, financing still a little bit slower to close on some deals. And it's still the same thing comes up. But we're able to prevent that by just learning from the past and trying to I would say nip it in the butt a little quicker if things are moving a little bit slower with as it relates to the financing. Be transparent and honest. I know sometimes it's, you know, we do it, you know, especially when you're negotiating, it's hard to be 100% because you're trying to always get the best deal. But once you're under contract and things are going to move a little slower, like call the broker and be like, hey, man, like I hate to have this conversation, but I don't want to have it a week before closing. It looks like the financing might take another two weeks. Can we like work on an extension and figure this out? So that's what we've learned, at least moving forward uh, from that experience. Yeah, I remember March 18th and then it was March 25th. Like, hey, Jerome, we don't want to buy anything while people are wearing masks. Uh, No, thanks. 
Ouch. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, yeah, that too. So that's the other thing too, Jerome. It was my investors, for the most part, they were all on board still, but I had probably 20% of my people drop in that deal. And I was like, now I have a debt problem and now I have an equity problem. I was like, ah, how can it get any worse? We ended up getting some new investors. So that's another thing too. We always, we try to, when we're bringing out a project, we try to over raise or oversubscribe for the deal by, you know, five to 10%. And now it's crazy because there's so much flush cash out there because everybody was on the sidelines. But we always now are trying to be a little bit more prudent. And especially some of these syndicators and operators, they underwrite some high leverage. Like they're talking like 80%. We're not going to get, I mean, we know for the most part, we're going to be brought down to a lower leverage point. So we never really underwrite that high. So we try to be on the safe side because we know things can happen, man. That's always an interesting proposition. Okay, so what were you doing from a health perspective when you were going through all this? Because I think it's something that's overlooked a lot where, you know, you're putting all your energy and effort into the enterprise, but you really have to take care of yourself in order to run your business. So are you? do you have any habits to make sure that you stay in good health? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't. When this all happened, I was very scared. Well, everybody was doing the same thing, right? We were checking the news every freaking day. And yeah, everybody was very scared. Understandably so. Yeah, during that time period, I was trying to stay sane, trying to be positive. I think what really helped was to, I've always wanted, like you, Jerome, to start a podcast, you know, develop content and become an education provider for the real estate industry, at least in some respects. So I ended up doing that. That kept me very busy. It helped me tremendously, as I'm sure it does with your business as well. So I ended up starting that, met a lot of different people virtually. That really helped with the mental health to still be able to, you know, communicate even if we weren't in person. And then, you know, go for runs and jogs outside and do much weightlifting at the time. And tried to get back into some meditation habits that I was prior to the pandemic, at least once a day for like 10 minutes. It was very hard to stay healthy. Now I try to work out every day and do the meditation and kind of keep up with it. But that's very important too, the health portion on both fronts. So it's always good to have that. And the sleep too, the sleep's a big component of that too. wasn't getting much sleep because you're stressed out. So try to get, (laughs) try to get some more sleep nowadays. So those three things for sure. Love it. Those are amazing. And I think you hit all the big ones. Only thing that maybe I would add in is, you know, what you consume from a food and even visual and audio perspective, because I think those things that you put in your body come back out in some way. So you figured out the health stuff. I just, I believe this is true. We'll see if it is. So did you ever get a phone call saying, hey, Anthony, I know you got that thing you've been working on, but we've got this opportunity for you to come over here and the salary will be around this. You want to come back? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I still get it. Jerome, once you have that what was the frame? The unemployable? Is that what you said? <laughs> so once you're unemployable, once you've had some level of success on your own, it's hard to work for the man or woman again. It's just hard to go back to it. So yeah, I mean, I'm sure you get it too, man. It's just sometimes it's like, wow, you're going to give me that type of cash up front and this moving forward. But again, you might be even more stressed out because you're reporting to someone now and you got multiple layers and you're not in control anymore. So Yes. And it's always, I, I say a backup, but I, I don't really consider any backups. This is what I'm doing. So 
it's enticing, but at the same time, it's it's also, and you hit a good point, it's not all about the money at the end of the day too. If someone, let's say someone offers you $200,000 salary and you were making a hundred grand or maybe 150 on your own, I'm going to stick with the working for myself. I don't need, especially on your lifestyle, you know, you might not need that extra 50,000, you know, especially depending upon your family situation too. You just, you know, you might not need it and you'd be more happier working for yourself and different priorities in every person's life that they have to set straight. So I don't necessarily think it's all about the money at the end of the day. You got to have a passion for it. I could sure as hell tell you if I work for somebody and they told me, Oh, Hey, can you like, can you start our podcast? And like, can you manage all the content? I'd be like, sure, but I'm going to do it once a week. You know, like I'm not going to like with mine and, and I'm sure with yours as well, you know, you're recording multiple episodes in a day and you're trying to spread them out and you're trying to keep building your brand. I'm not going to do that for the other. I'm not going to put the same love into it. That's a little bit more like a passion, you know, project for me. But I don't know. I just feel like I love what you said. So it's tough. It's tough to go back. <laughs> tough to go back might be an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because once you experience the freedom, right, it's not so much the money as it is the freedom to be able to set the schedule, to be able to know that the cap on your income is based on your productivity, right? It's not based on what somebody says, hey, Anthony, you're worth 100. That's what you get this year. doesn't matter what you do. I mean, we'll fire you if you don't do more than what we expect you to do, but, you know, your upside's capped. (laughs) Yes, definitely. No, definitely capped. But like you said, like we said, it's not always about the extra or whatever. Even if it's a significant amount, eh, might not matter. In the long run. Hey, when I stopped doing things for money, I got a whole lot happier. Yeah. So, That's- you know, and to that point, so level six of the red pill is significance. And I, I guess I want to start talking about the things that you've been able to do to make the world a better place since you've made this transition. And so the way that I usually open that up is like, what's your biggest difference in your approach to life today as an entrepreneur comp- as opposed to when you were an employee in somebody else's company. Yeah. I mean, I think the word grateful, grateful is a big word for me. I try to be as gracious as possible. I mean, I've had, especially to my investors and even to my tenants too, just very grateful for everything that's been happening the past couple of full-time years is just kind of blew up and the growth has been amazing. And I've had a lot of people who have trusted me with their capital and to these real estate projects and we've been doing well. And it's really cool to see, especially some of our younger folks in some deals. I have some people, I thought they were a little, I didn't even consider them to be like a real investor. Like I had a couple of people reach out to me and they're like, yeah, I'm interested in your next deal. I just graduated from college. I'm like, all right, what does this guy have? Like maybe $5,000, you know what I mean? No, the guy was able to put up at least, I think it was 50,000 for the first deal. And he's been in every single deal moving forward. And that's because we've been refinancing, returning capital, paying, paying the distributions, we said. And I think he's like 24 now, and we probably doubled his net worth. It's just amazing to see just the transformation in just our you know, investors' lives just from their lifestyle perspective. And you know, obviously, you know, we're helping them financially. I mean, I helped somebody like send their kid almost to college because, I mean, it was just crazy. So I'd like to say I'm making individual differences through my network on that front. And then on the property side, 
uh, with my tenants, you know, we have, I don't know, maybe 1,200 tenants between the, at least people between the 600 units. And we have a lot of two bedrooms. And, you know, I would say that maybe 80% of them are happy with, you know, because we usually acquire value add properties that have been run down for very many, many years. And we make improvements, significant improvements to both exterior and exterior. So they're really grateful with the approach that we're taking that we really like and we want to preserve where they live and we want to improve it. So we're not slumlords, sorry to put it that way. We, we take care of our people and we try to make their living a better place too. So I like to say on, on both those fronts, hopefully I'm making a difference. I don't think there's any way you can be making a difference if you're doubling people's net worth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's it's crazy, measurable. Crazy. <laughs> you could count that. You could take that to the bank, brother. So <laughs> Anthony, what dream are you most focused on catching next? Oh man, I gotta get some sleep first because I've been so busy uh, and then I'll be able to dream. No, I mean, I'm really excited to see trajectory of the multifamily industry for the next five, 10 years. I'd like to, you know, double down in some of the markets where we're focused and maybe get into the Carolinas with Jerome at some point. We're in four different markets now. I want to expand that footprint to maybe double the, the footprint in the next, let's say five to 10 years. That would be my dream. I'm not necessarily about unit count. I'm more about quality deals. So I don't really, I don't I want to be at 5,000 units. That's not the case. I just, I want to do quality deals or this X amount of deals a year that are quality. So yeah, it's some big dreams on the horizon. I have to narrow them down. I got to get some sleep first. Sleep, clarity, then execute against the strategy. So I love that though. I got to ask, right? I hear so many people saying, hey, the market's moving, you just got to get in, right? What do you say to that? Is it moving up or down? I mean, that's, you know, all depends upon the deal. And I don't care, like people say, oh, how are you finding deals? The market's crazy right now. Well, we talked about before, Jerome, is the relationships we have with our brokers. We're nurturing them and we're finding opportunities that the pricing is lower. Like, it's just weird. It's just once you have those relationships and you have some credibility, at least from my perspective, like we always look at the trends too. What happened last recession? You know, where were these properties trading last recession? Where were the rents trading last recession? If they're around, you know, if they were pretty stable and we didn't think the pricing was insane right now, then we would pull the trigger on it. But I think it's just, it comes down to the relationships, man. And if people are trying to get into something that they have no idea what they're getting into, then I would suggest, if, especially if it's real estate, you know, reach out to someone who's been in the industry for a while, you know, like people like Jerome and, you know, maybe work with them. And instead of trying to do it yourself, because you can make a lot of mistakes, especially right now, since the market's so hot. So it's terrifying what some folks are doing, but hey, they'll find out in three to five years that they made a mistake a while ago. Yeah, it's scary. And sometimes a lot of syndicators are taking on and this actually happened a couple of years ago in Florida. I'm seeing a lot of deals where they take on a long-term loan where they have these yield maintenance or, yeah, you know what it is, but for your audience, yield maintenance or defeasance penalties where the, the prepayment to pay off the debt is just outrageous. And part of their, they didn't even realize what they're getting into. And they're like, wait a minute, I got to pay $2 million to get out of my $5 million loan? I'm trying to sell the problem. Who? What? You know, so especially with the markets hot, people want to sell now. So people are getting into trouble now with some of the financing they put in place. I say, well, watch out your financing. Don't be over leveraged. Be careful with the type of financing you put on. Because like you said, 
three to five years from now, who knows what's going to happen. Yeah, it's interesting. Anyway, but that goes to making mistakes because you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. the final two questions are probably the toughest of this podcast. The first one is what gift are you giving the world? Oh, man. Hopefully, in some respect, a gift of gratitude. I got to always be thankful. It's just always, I always try to say thank you. Even if someone writes me wrong, just whether it's a tenant or whoever in the business, just or someone bothering you, like, you know, insurance, you know, whatever it is, um, just no thank you. I just always try to say thank you. I just, I've been on other sides of the coin where in different roles where just people just never said thank you. I just, I always hated that. So. <laughs> The gift of gratitude and appreciation. That's amazing. And the final question, Anthony, is what's the one thing you want the listeners to take away from the podcast? Yeah, I think the one thing is, if again, if you're trying to get into real estate, you know, start small and then eventually grow bigger or, you know, work with, you know, uh, someone a little bit more established like Jerome or myself, you know, I'd say those two things for sure. Man. Nice bow on it. I'm going to change the name of the episode. I named it earlier, but I'm going to change it now. This is outstanding. <laughs> Anthony, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and, and sharing your experience and wisdom with the listeners and to our tribe. Your dreams should be real. We'll talk soon. Thank you for joining the tribe today. We would love to hear from you. Please don't forget to rate, like, and share. Perhaps someone you know could benefit from what we've discussed. Until the next time, remember that your dreams should be real.